what happens this morning. Brethren, last Lord's Day, we ventured into 1 Peter 5. And I, as I said last time, I wanted to get through 1 Peter 4, chapters 4 and 5, because Peter has so many important lessons concerning what a church is and how it should conduct itself. And in particular, he has a lot to say about the interaction between the overseers, the, the pastor, and the flock. And so our focus entered into 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And our particular focus last Lord's Day was set upon verse 2, where Peter enjoins the under-shepherds of the church, he enjoins them to shepherd the flock of God, he says, among you. And so we expanded upon the very beautiful and precious details of that simple command, that simple instruction. We were reminded by this instruction of the fact that the church is, in fact, the flock of God. That by itself was a very important and informative descriptor of the church. The church is, therefore, God's possession. Not mine. It's not the possession of anyone else. It is the possession of the Lord Jesus Christ who purchased the church with his own blood. And he also enjoins the overseers to shepherd the flock of God, he says, among you. And that too, that little prepositional phrase, though small, is very informative because it helps us to think of and remember the reality of the relational identity between the, the pastor and the sheep. This is why I concluded my sermon by mentioning the story of Vance. And by the way, um, I included that story of Vance in a book years ago. And in, there, in, that, in the book, I used a pseudonym, pseudonym of um, Joe. And since we have so many Joes uh, in the congregation, I just decided to default back to his actual name. But I shared the story of Vance in a, a chapter in, in the book called, um, the chapter is called Not All Are Teachers. In order to help us to think about the fact that men like Vance get exposure to all kinds of instruction on the internet and through conferences and parachurch organizations, and men like Vance enter into the local church, and they imagine that they're capable of teaching. When in reality, they don't really have a relationship with the local church. They have things that have been placed into their minds. They have learned knowledge, but they don't really have a, a, the kind of a, a relationship with the local body whereby they can, A, be held accountable for their own lives, their own conduct, and B, such that they have actually a, a connection with the people. You, you have to have a relationship with the people in order to have this mutual accountability that is built into the body of Christ. This is the way God designed the church. So when Peter enjoins overseers to shepherd the flock of God, among you, it's the people who are among you, the people who are faithful to be a part of the local body. This is the concept. He doesn't say shepherd the flock of God with those loosely associated with you or those who occasionally attend when they feel like it, shepherd the flock of God among you. You know who they are. They know who you are. 
Minister to them. Be faithful to them. So this language presumes the idea of a bond and relationship between, again, the under-shepherd and the sheep. My fear and concern for the church over the years, and it's been growing, is that many people believe that they can substitute the local church with other things. Online blogs, online chat rooms, conferences, online media, seminars, and seminaries. Of course, I'm not saying that these things are bad. I'm not saying that any of those things are inherently bad. I just went to a conference this week. And I have a blog, and I've written books, and I've done a number of these things. I I use online media, but at the end of the day, we have to put these things in their proper place. And we have to understand that none of these things are a substitute for the local church. So it's the responsibility of under-shepherds to be faithful to God, to shepherd his sheep, and it's the responsibility of the sheep to be faithful in the assembly of the local church and to receive that shepherding care. It's a simple concept. This is why I bring up the story of Vance. And by the way, Vance is just one individual. I've run into many individuals who fit the same profile. But at the end of the day, Vance did not want accountability. He didn't want the accountability of the local church. And once that accountability was actually offered to him, he blew up like a bomb, began gossiping in the church, as I said last Lord's Day, writing me nasty grams and so forth. I had a thick file full of them. And all of that is sad. It's sad for Vance. It's also sad in view of the churches that helped to produce a man like Vance. I believe that if 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 were adhered to more carefully and more closely by churches, that they would be more engaged with the people among them, the flock among them. We have a duty and responsibility to be on the lookout for, in a, in a loving and shepherding way, even for one another. And I'm going to say a few things about that at the end of the sermon here. But I have a duty towards you to minister to you, and you have a responsibility to me to receive that, that, that ministry, and we work together in all of this for the glory of Christ, who is the chief shepherd. We answer to him, ultimately. This is the key idea. So this morning, what I'd like to do is to venture further into 1 Peter chapter 5, where Peter expands upon the nature of the relationship of the shepherd and the sheep. And first of all, he talks about the personal engagement, the personal engagement of the pastor and God's flock. He then talks about the needful humility of the pastor and God's flock. And then he talks about the needful vigilance and hope that needs to be in the heart of the pastor as well as the flock. And so I'm going to read the text here again. And then we're going to summarize the portions of these scriptures here this morning that we're going to focus on. He says this in verse 1. Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ... 
and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, the first thing I'd like for us to consider is the nature of the personal engagement that we see described in these verses where Peter says, shepherd the flock of God among you. <coughs> Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising, he says, oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. What we have here are three pairings of antithetical descriptions of the nature of a shepherd's ministry to the flock and the flock's then reception of that ministry. So the first pair of antithetical statements comes when he says, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but what? Voluntar but voluntarily according to the will of God. <coughs> The second pair of antithetical instruction comes when he says, not for sordid gain, there's the negative, then the positive, but with eagerness. Then the third comes when he says, in the negative, he says, nor yet, nor is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Every one of these three pairs of antithetical statements are designed to show us both sides of the coin of ministry. You're either going to do one or the other. You're either going to minister with a willing spirit or you're going to have a compulsory spirit. You're either going to be eager to, to serve in the ministry or you're going to have false motives in the ministry. In the case of, in the case of this text, the pursuit of sordid gain. And you're either going to be one who is becoming an example to the flock or you're going to be like the Pharisees who just say, do as I do and not as I or excuse me, do as I say and not as I do. See, that's the, uh, that's the bark speaking. 
I knew that was going to happen at some point. <laughs> but mark this. Here's the concluding statement to these antithetical statements. Peter then says in chapter 5 and verse 4, he says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is really an anchor to everything else that he instructs in these antithetical statements. He's helping under shepherds know, to know. They, he's helping them to, to comprehend the fact that they must set their eyes on the chief shepherd in everything that they do. And if they do this, if they set their eyes on the chief shepherd, then they will have a willing spirit, a willing heart then they will, in fact, minister with eagerness. Then they will be men who, in fact, are becoming an example to the flock. I believe verse 4 is key because, again, a focus on the chief shepherd leads to a right pursuit of godly ministry among those who are called to shepherd the flock of God. Now let's look at that first pairing of antithetical statements where he says that the under-shepherd is to exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, and then he says, according to the will of God. Again, this is the difference between a compulsory spirit versus a willing spirit. Do you remember, it wasn't that long ago that we looked at Psalm 110 and verse 3, where we see this foundational attitude to the Christian life and to Christian ministry, where those who are the, the servants of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords in Psalm 110, they are described as willingnesses, literally in the plural. The children of God, the servants of God are a willing people. At, their, at the heart of their life and ministry is a desire and a joy to serve the Lord. That's the idea. And so really when we talk about this idea of having a willing spirit, this is someone who says, yes, Lord, whatever you command, Lord. This is someone who says and confesses that his commandments are not burdensome, but they're a joy to pursue. And just as this is to be in the heart of every child of God, this is especially to be in the heart of the under-shepherd in God's church. And it is this willing attitude that destroys compulsory servitude. Doing things just because you have to. When I was a kid, I had to take out the trash. I wasn't very willing about doing that. And so I would put that off, put that off, put that off until the last minute, and then you could just see me running through the house as soon as my parents were getting home. I'd be running through the house, taking care of the trash, and oftentimes I'd be caught red-handed of not having done it yet until mom and dad got home. <coughs> this is what you get when you have a compulsory spirit and attitude about doing anything. You may not even get around to doing whatever you feel like you have to do, but you really don't want to do. But someone who has a willing heart, a, a, a spirit of voluntarism, this is someone who is going to attack whatever he must do and do it right away and take care of it because it is on his heart to do so for the Lord. This is why I told the story of Vance, not just to talk to you about Vance, but to talk to you about the dangers that come when elders see a Vance 
and they don't want to deal with it. Remember, I talked about this last Lord's Day at the conclusion of the sermon. They didn't want to talk to Vance because they knew that if they dared to touch Vance and dare to give him some accountability, that he would likely blow up. And he did when we gave it to him. <coughs> the problem with that was, <coughs> is that by letting Vance continue in perpetuity with his thoughts and ideas of being a maverick who just floats into church here and there, a man who believed that he had the authority to teach people and could enter into ministry and so forth, but really wasn't willing to be held accountable by other people, especially those in the church. The compulsory spirit of the elders allowed this to perpetuate and continue to the point where when we finally talked to Vance, he couldn't even imagine that someone would dare hold him accountable. You know, love would have approached Vance right away. Love would have sought out Vance from the beginning and said, Vance, we love you. Um, we're seeing a pattern in your life that we're concerned about. We want to talk to you about this. We want to help you. But a failure to do that early on just allowed the tumor to grow and fester. You know, when men fix their eyes on Jesus, when under-shepherds focus on the chief shepherd, they will serve willingly. But if they set their eyes on themselves and set their eyes on the desire to have a, a peaceful life and, or a, a life without conflict and controversy, then you'll have men who just seek the path of least resistance. Or they'll just find ways to compromise. Let's just make this thing go away. You know, instead of dealing with this guy, let's just go ahead and let him go do his thing. That's why they wanted me to sign the form, even though they wouldn't. The problem is, is that if you keep sweeping things under the rug again and again and again, what do you end up with? You end up with a well-hidden mess. And at some point, you're going to have to deal with it. But a willing heart says, I'm doing this for the chief shepherd. Let's deal with this. Let's address this. Let's speak the truth in love to this man. The second antithetical pairing that comes with Peter's instruction is this. The shepherds are to minister, he says, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. So really you have the antithesis of personal greed versus an eager heart that says, I'm going to do this for the Lord. Whether or not there's any income or any kind of incentive or any kind of provision in view. <coughs> D. Edmund Hebert in his commentary on 1 Peter says this, he says, it is unacceptable to enter the ministry merely because it offers a respectable and intellectually stimulating way of gaining a livelihood. That warning also includes a temptation to gain personal popularity or social influence. Where the love of gain reigns, the shepherds are prone to become mere hirelings. But the under-shepherd is called to serve with eagerness. Again, eagerness as unto the chief shepherd. 
When I was in seminary, I remember reading Spurgeon's letters to his students. And he said this, I, I, I'll never forget this remarkable statement. He says, <clears throat> he says, those who cannot endure hardness, but, but are of the kid-gloved order, I refer elsewhere. He's talking about his college and about those who would be allowed to enter into his college, the tabernacle uh, 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 King's College. He says this, we want soldiers, not fops. A fop is somebody who's just really interested about their appearance and what they look like. We want earnest labors, not genteel loiters. Men who have done nothing up to their time of application to the college are told to earn their spurs before they are publicly dubbed as knights. Fervent lovers of souls do not wait until they are trained. They serve their Lord at once. Honestly, I think that there's such wisdom in this. Um, a man has to be willing to do whatever is needful for the sake of the body of Christ, whether they're receiving any remuneration for it or not. Or not. An eager heart to serve the chief shepherd will do this. But without that eagerness, there can be the vile corruption of a desire for sordid gain or even popularity and prominence among the people of God. Then the third pairing that he gives, a third antithetical pairing in his instruction set, comes when he says, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. This expression, lording it over, really speaks of the idea of someone who has a false understanding of authority. It, it reveals someone who doesn't really understand that the church is the flock of God and that it is the chief shepherd whose authority that we sit under. Someone who lords it over another doesn't really understand that the flock is in fact the flock of God. Again, quoting Hebert, he says this, the tragic impact of such an attitude is illustrated by the account of Diotrephes in 3 John 9 and 10. If church governors add to or subtract from the word of God, they make themselves lords over the consciences of others. But genuine rule in the church is an administration of Christ's lordship by his willing servants. This idea of serving under the authority of Christ alone is important. And Hebert's mention of Diotrephes is key because Diotrephes was not operating under the authority of God in his word. In fact, he was rejecting the apostle John, as you'll recall. Not a good thing to reject an apostle, by the way. I often think of the example of the doorkeeper in John chapter 10. When I think of my own responsibility as an under-shepherd to God's church, I think of the doorkeeper in John 10. Remember, Jesus referred to the, the sheep pen the sheep, the shepherd, and a doorkeeper in John chapter 10. And the doorkeeper I, I look at as being an example for what a, an under-shepherd is to do, what a pastor is to do. 
All that the doorkeeper does in John chapter 10 is this, three things. Number one, he looks for the shepherd who is the owner of the sheep. That's the first principle. As a doorkeeper, he's not the one who owns the sheep. He's just there to protect them and care for them while the shepherd is away. But what he's doing is he's looking for the, the one who actually owns the sheep, and he looks for him and listens for his call. The second thing he does is when he sees the shepherd, he opens the door so that the shepherd can have access to his sheep. And the third thing I would say that is there inferentially is this. When you open up a door in your home or wherever, you open up a door to let somebody in, do you open up the door and just stand in the way? You know, come on in. While you block the door, that's not how you do it. As a doorkeeper, you open the door and then you step aside so that the, the individual can come in. That's what the doorkeeper does. That's what a pastor does. They're not his sheep. He knows the one who owns the sheep. He looks for him, listens for him, opens the door, and gets out of the way. You know, the Pharisees were the very opposite of what Peter is talking about. Because they were a group of individuals who would say repeatedly, do as I say and not as I do. Fred Malone commenting on this with reference to 1 Peter chapter 5 says this, the Pharisees were masters of domination over the conscience of others, adding rules and laws to the Sinai laws to bind the consciences of men. And yet, the Pharisees were the great violators of the law of God because they had added to the law their oral traditions. And so Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23, he says that the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you do and observe, <clears throat> but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. And they tie up heavy loads and lay them upon men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. There's a great danger for any individual who develops the motif of do as I say and not as I do. I think of this as a parent in my own home. If I model hypocrisy to my children, that is such a destructive thing. Do as I say, but not as I do. What that is really encouraging is, is a duplicity that is destructive. What it is saying is, is that it's okay to say things, but not mean it, and then go out and do something else. This is why the expression in the antithetical expression overall, that the shepherd is to be one who is becoming an example to the flock really helps us to understand that the words matter, but also the life matters, and they need to go together. So that the, the under-shepherd who is speaking and teaching and proclaiming the word of God in the church is one who is actually growing and maturing by the very word that he is proclaiming. The word becoming correctly translated as a in, in its participial form, 
Ginomenoi is a present active participle. That says that the shepherd is always growing and to be maturing and improving. And then it says that he is to be an example at Tupoi to the flock. Tupoi means an, an example, an image that you would see in a mirror or an item that has been stamped by a ring, like a ring that is stamping an image into wax. The idea is that this is something that is to be seen and imitated and replicated, is the notion. Any pastor in any church is an imperfect man, but he is to be someone who is growing and maturing and who is someone who can be an example to the flock. It's not just words. It's his life. And by the way, that has to, uh, you cannot have that dynamic until you are, in fact, among the shepherds. Without the sheep being among the shepherds, there's no sense in which you can actually see the man becoming an example. And so personal engagement is absolutely essential. The relational dynamic between an under-shepherd and the sheep is absolutely essential. Then Peter enjoins us to the issue of humility. He says, he talks about the need for humility for the pastor and for God's flock. He opens up the exhortation, not just to the, to the shepherds, but to the whole flock. He says, you younger men likewise, verse 5, be subject to your elders and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. One of the reasons why it was such a privilege to describe the church and talk about the essential nature of the church, first of all, going from John 21 to 1 Peter chapter 4, is because we see that Peter, who faltered and failed so much, became a man who was able to encourage the brethren and to speak of the need of humility, a humility that we do not see in Peter in the Gospels, but we now see it as he exhorts the brethren in these epistles. Peter learned the important lesson that pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Frankly, pride ruins absolutely everything. If I were to prepare a dish, your favorite dish, and give you all the garnishments that you asked for, and before handing it to you, I sprayed poison over the whole thing, as beautiful as that dish may be, I've just ruined everything with poison. That's the way pride is. Pride absolutely ruins everything. This is the original sin that was found in the heart of Satan, where he boastfully declared that he would be just like the Most High. And sinful human nature is reflective of that very corruption. By the way, you know what's interesting? I saved verse 1. For this morning because in verse 1 we see that Peter who exhorts the church to 
pursue humility, we see that Peter exemplifies that humility in the first verse. Look at the first verse. He says, therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your what? Fellow elder. Your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Now, now Peter, when he began the epistle, he identified himself as an apostle. And this is normal. He's helping us to understand that He's not just any Peter, he is the Peter who is an apostle of Jesus Christ and bears the exact authority of Christ as Christ's representative in, in the earth. But when we get to the fifth chapter, we see Peter condescending himself to those whom he addresses as fellow elders and refers to himself as a fellow elder. You know, brethren, this reminds us of the fact that Peter's responsibilities and duties as an elder were the same as any other elder in the local church. And his title as apostle didn't change that. He also calls himself a fellow witness of the sufferings of Christ in the elliptical sense, the, the idea of him being speaking in a condescending expression. He's a fellow witness of the sufferings of Christ. Again, hear the word Martus, the idea is a witness or someone who testifies to what he has seen and heard. We too, as, as, as under shepherds and elders, and all of us are, are witnesses of Christ. And he also refers to himself as a fellow partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. What a clear departure from the disciples who formerly desired to know who would be stationed on Jesus' left-hand or right-hand side in the kingdom of heaven. They wanted to know what prominence they would have in Jesus' kingdom. But here, there is no mention of Peter's future ranking in heaven. He is merely a fellow partaker of future glory. Again, what a departure from the past contentions and argumentations that the disciples had when they were arguing over who was going to be the greatest among them or Peter when he was saying to Jesus that even though all may fall away because of, because of you I will never never fall away he went from such pride to such humility and it's beautiful brethren Peter came to learn that the imitation of Christ has at its core this indispensable quality of humility, which is the bedrock of genuine servitude. And I would say to you that by calling himself a fellow elder, he's actually modeling what he's teaching when he says that, we're, that under shepherds are to be becoming examples. He is exemplifying the very humility that he is calling the church to pursue. Brethren, I would say to you that 1 Peter chapter 5 reminds us that the biblical model of leadership is one that calls for a leadership dynamic and interaction between shepherds and sheep that is close and personal. It is in this context that a man can be known not just for what he says, but also for his life, which is constantly being transformed by God's grace. However, the scriptural model is often replaced with a business model where 
today where pastors operate more like CEOs who are managing a corporation. Sadly, the contemporary model of megachurches, satellite campuses, live stream preaching, and internet-based ministry has in too many cases served to replace the scriptural model of personal and direct interaction between under shepherds and sheep. And an environment such as this creates a kind of professional distance between leaders in the congregation while the people conduct themselves like employees of a company. This is not what the church is. You know, since my earliest days in the ministry, I've seen this trend get worse and worse and worse over time. I've seen more and more of this corporate model entering into the church, and I've seen more and more of this appetite and desire for what I call celebritism, where you get a really popular preacher, you have your satellite campuses, uh, and people listen to him, and they can see him on a screen, but they have no idea who he is, and he has no idea who they are. In that case, that man is not shepherding the flock of God among him. He's just shepherding a TV screen. In the end, the church is not to be an idol-seeking talent show searching for the next batch of preachers who can wow the masses with a fresh wave of books, videos, and conferences. Instead, pastors in the local church have a very simple and pure calling. And that is to magnify one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to deliver his word to his sheep to this lost and to this lost world. What's so, so alarming is the ease with which individuals are so easily taken in by modern undercurrents of this celebritism of which I speak. The form and appearance of a man in the ministry can often look very commendable at a distance, but his true nature is best seen up close and in person. And this takes time. Thus, the preacher seen on a video screen may be very impressive for his oration, elocution, and demonstrated knowledge, but if he is not present among the people, 1 Peter 5, 2, as one who is becoming an example to the flock before their eyes, 1 Peter 5, 3, then he is nothing more than a well-spoken stranger. One of the sad things that I learned, I think, as a young 32-year-old pastor trying to help Vance is that he gave me his list of all the preachers that he considered to be his mentors. These are men that he never met, and these pastors never knew him, but he listened to their sermons. And he was quite sure that he was really just a disciple of these men somehow. But these pastors didn't know him. They didn't know his personal life, his wife, his family. They knew nothing about his personal conduct in the local church. Vance had no accountability. And those churches who allowed him to carry on a superficial relationship with them, bouncing from place to place, were a part of the problem. Brethren, I often tell people, if you won't be invested in this flock, please be invested in a church somewhere. 
Give your life and energy and, 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 and all of your resources as much as you can in a church somewhere. And be there with enough consistency so that people can get to know you and you can get to know them and that the under-shepherd of that church can know you and you can know him. But I want to make sure I'm not misunderstood here. I'm not against conferences, blogs, theology chat rooms, online media, things of that nature. What I'm against is exalting any of those things above the church which God made for his glory. And if we don't exercise restraint with these things, placing them in their proper place, then the church's primacy will be lost and we will suffer as a result. I think that's one of the great dangers of the modern day is that people can gain the, 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 the perception that maybe they're becoming a better disciple of Christ just because they're listening to sermons or whatever. But if they don't have a bond and, and connection to the local church, that could just be nothing more than a, a ruse. And by the way, when Peter says in verse 5, and all of you, and all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward Alelus, one another. It's called a reciprocal pronoun. What's a reciprocal pro pronoun? It's, it's the idea of reciprocity. I have a responsibility to clothe myself with humility and to extend that humility and ministry to you, and you have a responsibility to do that with me. We're to, we're to help each other to grow in this matter of hum, humble servitude. That goes both ways. And if you're not engaging with a local church, you can't really do this. Thirdly and finally, after talking about the importance of the personal engagement of the under-shepherd and the sheep, and the need for humility in our servitude to, towards one another, he then speaks of the importance of having vigilance and hope. Vigilance and hope. Hope that is set upon Christ. So he says this in verse 8. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. This call to vigilance at the end of 1 Peter happened at the beginning of the epistle. There's a sense in which Peter begins with a call to vigilance and he ends with a call to vigilance. At the beginning of the epistle, he says in verse 13 of chapter 1, he says, Therefore, gird your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. P. 
Peter understands what a danger it is not to be vigilant. As Jesus told Peter, it was Satan who demanded permission to sift him like wheat such that he would end up denying Christ. And yet now, in his epistle, as he's encouraging the brethren, he concludes the epistle again by saying, be of sober spirit, be on the alert, and then he says, your adversary the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. If anyone understands this, it's Peter. And Peter says, be watchful. Be watchful. Guard your heart, your mind, your lives, your doctrine, every aspect of your life and being because Satan is constantly looking to devour you. Brethren, we all stumble and fall. We all falter and fail from time to time. When we do, we need to make sure that we learn from those mistakes. Don't ever waste an opportunity to learn from your mistakes. Again, we all falter and fail. When that happens, learn. Look at what you did. Look at how you failed. Look at how you failed to be vigilant such that you ended up stumbling and falling. Learn from that and understand, I need to reject this. I need to be more on guard against what happened there when I stumbled in sin. Think about how you need to focus more on Christ, the chief shepherd, to set your mind on the things above where Christ is. And to remember, as, Paul, as Peter concludes in verse 11, he says, To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. The word dominion there is the word kratos. speaks of power. Power, which by inference then means, we talked about this when we were talking about the sovereignty of God. God has all power and dominion. We tend to conflate those terms why? Because in order to exercise dominion, you have to have power to do so. These ideas, again, are very much related. Our Lord has all power and all dominion. And so we flee to him for his daily provision of grace so as to resist the devil, so as to remain vigilant in what is a war. spiritual war of the flesh and the spirit. Brethren, let me just offer a few concluding thoughts. A few weeks ago, I mentioned Hebrews chapter 10 and encouraged you to think about what is enjoined, what is presented in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 20, verses 24 and 25. When the author of Hebrews says, consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, remember that word stimulate comes from a word that speaks of the idea of a cattle prod. And I commend you for the fact that no one showed up with an actual cattle prod the next week. But the idea, you understand the spiritual concept. The concept is, is that you're coming to church, not passively, but in an active sense. Saying to yourself, I want to encourage 
others and simulate others to love and good deeds. But notice in the detail of the language, notice the idea of the word consider. He says, consider how, how to simulate one another to love and good deeds. Katanomen is the word. And it speaks of this idea of discovering something by direct observation. By direct observation. You know, if you're attending the church of online media, there's no sense in which you can have the direct observation of the needs of other people. Now, by the way, let me say this. I'm thankful we have a streaming service. I'm thankful that for those who cannot get out of their homes, that we're able to provide sermons to them. At this point, I'm not talking about individuals who absolutely have to have that. I'm talking about the idea of those who are capable of being in the church of God, but who refuse to do so for whatever reason. But the point of Hebrews 10 is this. There is no sense in which you can consider katanomen. There's no sense in which you can consider, think about, cogitate over, and, 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 and ruminate over this idea of how I'm going to simulate someone else to love and good deeds. There's no sense in which you can do that if you're not engaging with other people. Discovering by direct observation what their needs are so that you can meet with others and say, I want to encourage you. I want to help you. I want to be a, a support to you. This is why the body of Christ is so important. This is why the personal interaction of the church is so important. And another corollary text that I'll offer here in conclusion is Romans 15 and verse 14, where Paul commends the church at Rome and he says this, he says, concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish, and there we have it again, one another. Alleluus, alleluus, another reciprocal pronoun. Paul is saying to the church at Rome, he's saying, you were doing well, and here's why, because you're able to admonish, exhort, encourage one another and you understand in other words by virtue of that reciprocal pronoun that you all have this responsibility one to another there's no distinction within the body of Christ one person has that duty and responsibility to encourage and admonish another person that person has the same and equal responsibility to admonish and encourage the first person it goes both ways this is one of the reasons why the pastor needs to be about the business of expositing scripture because as I exposit scripture and as we all learn from the word of God we grow in this matter of being capable of exhorting and admonishing and encouraging one another stimulating one another to love and good deeds because without the word of God guess what we've got nothing so brethren this is key all of these principles are so essential. And I pray to God that we would not just learn these things in our heads, but that these things would be transformative principles that are embedded in our hearts so that we together can glorify God in all that we say and do. 
our closing hymn, Thou Art Worthy. If you need the hymn, it's number 73. It's very brief, though. Let's stand together and let's sing Thou Art Worthy together. Heavenly Father, we confess that you are worthy. We confess that our chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, is worthy of all glory, laud, and honor. Father, thank you for making us your people, your church. May we conduct ourselves in the household of God in such a way that you are indeed honored and glorified. Thank you for the riches of your word for the privilege of this series. May these things be settled in our lives and our hearts as well as our minds such that they would deeply impact our conduct from day to day. We ask and pray and petition all these things in the fair and precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ.